1: With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles; we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem-solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com.
2: out there along the the best free throw shoot. Clark in a straight check.
0: That is, of course, the memorable voice of Kevin Harlan, one of the best play-by-play people out there, and his remarkable call that went viral of Furman upsetting Virginia in the NCAA tournament. I am Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Kevin Harlan is a guest on this podcast. He is followed by Jeff Perlman. Kevin comes on to talk about going viral. With that uh, with that fantastic call, as well as just the challenge of calling four games in one day, as all NCAA tournament announcers for television have to do. And a number of other topics we get into, including calling games in Las Vegas. Jeff Perlman, who has a great substack, Jeff Perlman's Journalism Yang Yang substack, comes on to discuss one of the pieces he wrote, which was about never paying for sources and how there is, at least in sports, a little bit of nuance there. And We get into a discussion on that. Jeff Perlman was a longtime colleague of mine at Sports Illustrated, author of 10 books. He's got a book that will eventually come out on Tupac Shakur, a biography, probably not for a year at least, but uh, he's been hard at work on that, and that should be really fascinating in the hands of Jeff Perlman. Before we get to those interviews, I want to just announce, if you hadn't seen it, that um, I'm going to be guest editing the year's best sports writing book for 2023. Official title is the year's best sports writing 2023. It's from Triumph Books. Um, Incredibly excited to have been part of this. I was on the advisory board last year when J.A. Adande was the editor, and J.A. is part of my advisory panel, Um, and I got some great people uh, on that panel as well. You can uh, follow their work, check out the notices on um, on Twitter. But uh, when the announcements come, which will be in a couple months, um, I uh, will definitely be having some of the people in the main selection part on this podcast to talk about their work. But uh, I mean, just uh, a real thrill to be able to marinate in so many great writers' work over the last uh, couple months. It's been a long project, but uh, I'm excited to see the book will be out in October. If you're interested, uh, you can pre-order on Amazon. You can pre-order. Barnes & Noble, we pretty pretty much pre-order anywhere. And again, the year's best sports writing, 2023. All right, and with that, let's go to Kevin Harlan on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, I am pleased to be joined by Kevin Harlan, the fine CBS Sports, Warner Brothers Discovery Sports, and Westwood One audio play-by-play broadcaster. It is the month of March, and obviously you are hearing Kevin Harlan's voice calling the NCAA tournament and we will get to the man who went viral this week i am pleased to be joined by kevin harlan kevin welcome back to the sports media podcast
2: thank you for the invitation richard always uh, always fun to catch up and visit with you
0: all right kevin so take me if you can through your call of the final minutes of Furman, virginia which we, we played a little bit at the top where america has now seen you losing your mind <laughs>
2: Well, like, like all close games, you you're, you think time and score, you think who's on the floor, and you think of all the possibilities. But quite frankly, when one of the most accomplished guards in college basketball, who had played on the Final Four championship team a couple years ago, uh, and one of the most respected guards in college basketball, uh, was caught in that situation and did not take the time out. And uh, threw it wildly the other way. It was like, oh, my God, what are we seeing? And I think that probably came through, actually, on the call. Like, it was just so unbelievable that a guard as as veteran as he was did what he did. Uh, But the great thing about this tournament is that defense has kind of been the theme and uh, upstarts are, are making their imprint even more, as we've seen a 16-seed win, and in this case, a uh, 13-seed in Furman. And uh, so I guess you just you just brace yourself for whatever might come your way. No team is out of it because of the three, and clearly in this situation that was the case with Furman and their terrific comeback with defense leading to the transition, the interception, and then eventually the game-winning shot against a a solid Virginia team. And uh, from a bigger conference and was Furman for the first time in the tournament in 43 years. So it all, it all mixed up into a pretty nice little formula for, for CBS and for Turner. And um, I'm glad that uh, I I don't know that I'm glad that they caught our expression, but I'm glad that that game was on the air.
0: (laughs) So let me ask you this, Uh, like unquestionably you and that group are excited But you also know there's a camera on you. So I must ask, are you playing it up a little bit because you know the camera is there? Or is that uh, Kevin Harlan organic, putting his arms out like a a flight controller and and just going nuts?
2: Uh, It is uh, 110% organic. Um, Because you're so lost in the game, sincerely, the last thing you're thinking about is it a camera's on you? Probably not unlike a coach on the sideline who is so deep into coaching his team, he rarely, if ever, even realizes that his actions are being chronicled uh, constantly by, by the director in the truck. Quite frankly, um, I think I join a chorus of other announcers who do not like the camera. Um, when it was first brought to our attention this year, maybe it was last year, but but certainly this year, I begged our and in, in the NFL, I begged our producer, please, please, please never show this. And then for the, you know, then we just kind of got used to it. And, and quite frankly, because they never used any footage, I forgot about it. And I, I do think it is kind of peeking in the back of the curtain. And I just think there are some things that you just don't want to see. You don't want to. You don't want to see how hot dogs are made or, or, you know, like, it's like if if we put a camera on you as you're writing one of your stories for the athletic, right? I mean, I mean, it just, this is kind of a personal space and, and I have voiced my concern quite frankly to uh, both CBS and Turner. Um, It's one reason why Westwood doesn't have anything in our booth. And, um, I I just think there's some, but it's not like we're thinking. I I it was the truly the last. It, it didn't even cross my mind. It, it so then they they tape that. I don't know that it's been recorded. The next broadcast schedule for us were the two games on Saturday, and as we're getting through our pre production at the table, they say, "Hey, read this line and then lay out." As we're rehearsing, here's an hour and a half before tip off, and they run that clip uh, with all the shots that the great camera people for CBS had, had in that moment. And I said, Kenny, I said, I uh, I just I'm very uncomfortable with this. He goes, No, 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 it's great. And I said, you know what? I appreciate the time that all the men and women put into putting that little vignette together to highlight the the greatness of the uh, the surprise of the Furman win. But I am Uncomfortable because now it injects us into the narrative, and we should not be let our voices perhaps carry it. But it's about the kids, the shot, the crowd, the all that. It's not about our reaction. And he goes, "Oh, I, I firmly disagree." The thing that saved it going on the air, quite frankly, was that Mike Arnold, who is our uh, Super Bowl director for CBS, he's been there over three decades. And he's fairly conservative, I think, like I am, just in terms of, of, you know, not extending in any direction. He said, no, 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 we, we need to use it. This is, this is This is good. It's the only time that I've seen it. I've had uh, a lot of people that have texted it to me since. Uh, CBS put it up yesterday. They, the PR department did alert me that it was going up and going to be on social media, which I don't go to. Uh, and then a, a, about an hour after I got that email, I started getting a, a, a bunch of text with that clip, which I had not seen since that Saturday in Orlando. Um, kind of embarrassed by it, <laughs> quite, quite frankly. Um, I, 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 I'm i not comfortable with it. I, I understand why CBS wanted to use that. And I guess I trust my bosses more than I trust myself in this situation. I, I'm assuming this was signed off by Sean and David and, and Harold at CBS. But at the same time, if they asked me my preference, I would have said, please don't put that up there. And I still feel the same way, quite frankly.
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate that answer and the, and the transparency. And just so the audience knows, Sean McManus, David Burst and Harold Bryant, those are the, um, uh, sort of three lead executives at, uh, at CBS sports. But that's interesting. And I, 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 um, you know, I we have talked before about how you felt about the um your call of the streaker in the NFL going viral and that you weren't very comfortable with that. So that's you're consistent you on that. At the same time, I do think this this does add excitement for people regarding the tournament. I want to ask you something, Kevin, cuz this is a very one of the few people who who have done this. Obviously, your CBS colleagues and Turner colleagues as well, but The idea to call four games in one day is such a unique, um, just just a unique kind of experience to this singular tournament. And so you've now done it for a long time. So I guess in some ways, like, you have a a strategy and you have a plan and some muscle memory to it. But can you let my listeners know on just, like, how do you approach that? Because this is unlike anything you normally would do. You know, you got to call the Super Bowl for Westwood One. It's one game two teams um you kind of know who's going to be there you could really go in depth with each of these teams but for four, te- four eight teams in one uh, you know what i mean one day uh, that kind of long stretch where you got to keep your energy up man it seems like such a hard assignment
2: it is it's the most challenging day i think every one of my uh, seven uh, play-by-play brothers would and sisters would say uh because lisa joins us uh, again this year and And I think all of us would feel like it's the most challenging day, both vocally and um, focus-wise, to keep your mind alert and fresh and nimble enough that you're calling Game 4 as hopefully well as you called Game 1 and 2. And uh, the preparation, I'm not lying to you. We find out Sunday night, usually fairly late, what our site is and what our eight teams are going to be. And so for me, it is a layered process of preparation. Everybody has their own way. And, uh, but for me, it's beginning with uh, uh, literally uh, one stage, second stage, third stage, fourth stage, and fifth from just typing out my uh, spotting boards to filling in uh, some of the essential information of the statistical view of the kid. Um, pronunciation for sure, a little bit about the school. and then then you go a little bit deeper and you start getting into their season and what they've done recently and what they did over the body of the year. And then you go another layer deeper and you start to dig into each kid more. But I think anyone would be f- fooling you saying that, oh, I'm completely prepared. and 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 uh, because that's not the case in the NFL, we get six days to prepare. Uh, when we get a game on Turner, we get one week to prepare. Uh, because we know the team and the game coming up. And so you do a little bit every day. And like you study for an exam in college, uh, repetition a little bit every day builds up. And at the end of the, you know, uh, t- at, when tip-off is at hand or the kickoff is ready to go, you've put in, you know, double-digit hours of of tape study and reflection on your last game and grading what you've done in a review and prep for this game. You, you've gone through all these important phases but for this, you're just trying to just accumulate as much as you can, and you're literally working up until until the tip off, and working between the games to polish off some information, uh, r- r- double check, triple check with the sports information director on notes or pronunciations or whatever. So it is it's 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 unsatisfying in that regard because when you put a whole weekend to getting ready for a game. Um, you can savor the result. You can savor maybe how you attacked or an angle you took at a certain play or player or, or issue or story in this, you're just trying to, <laughs> you're just trying to survive and get to the next game. And vocally, you're constantly, uh, making sure that you have a little bit left in the tank for that last game. And so it's all of this stuff into the recipe, which is challenging, and Furman was the first game we had the other day in Orlando, but we had three other games to go. So Furman runs off the floor and the the, the, the arena's buzzing, but here come the two next teams out there practicing in 25 minutes, the tip off and you're ready to go for game two. So you've got to readjust and that becomes challenging. Um, everything about the business to me is challenging. And I, I just want to add one more thing on that camera and, and, that, all, and, and, and the whole thing is that if you're doing it the right way, and this is how I kind of, at least at the in the moment, grade myself, if if I'm doing it the right way, the, the way that I think it should be done, you're losing yourself in the game. You're so wrapped up in the substitutions, in the foul situation, in the leading score, and the strategy, and not the least of which is setting up now two partners I've got who have got information themselves as they've studied like I have. So it, it's the balancing of that. It's, it's making sure that there's a breath and pockets of space. And so your mind is so entrenched on the game. Honest to God, the last thing you're thinking about is the camera. And when they showed it to me on Saturday, a day and a half removed from what actually happened, um, I was reminded of that fact. Okay, I was so lost. I, 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 the last thing I was even thinking about was that they had this, this silly camera on us and and so um you you go through so much to prepare that you don't let your mind you can't you cannot let your mind drift into a blowout into the camera into whatever you've got to be so into what's going on and lost lost in the game and 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 that is um, that was the only gratifying thing actually I took out of that moment is that I had no idea. I'm appalled at how I looked and acted and embarrassed, like I said earlier. I, I'm afraid that I probably have done that too multiple times on big touchdown receptions or plays or whatever. And now I'm going, oh my God, if that's the way I look, I, I feel I I'm embarrassed. I'm 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 embarrassed. But I am lost in the game. And sometimes to get those calls, you need to physically like have it jump out of your mouth. Like you've got to say, you know, w- w- whatever it is. Oh, he hit the basket or he got it or, or or whatever. And sometimes you need that extra like oomph. When John Madden was in the booth and he was broadcasting early in his career, he was unanimated off the air. Like he was, he was, you know, sitting down. And then I don't know if it was Summerall or Scott or Gary Bender or whoever, said, John, be yourself. And on the sideline, you're animated. Your your arms are moving like this. And and what you learned later on, and I heard this at a Fox seminar when I was there in the early 90s, is that Madden said that helped him get the words out that he wanted to get out, like he needed to be physically involved with the call to get out the right word and the right emotion that he was trying to convey. And that always stuck with me. Not that I purposely do it, but when I see stuff like happened last Thursday, I guess that's kind of uh, had had been embedded in me, and and calls like that in the past, and and certainly in Orlando in round one.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. First of all, nothing to be appalled or embarrassed about, but that Madden story is is really really interesting. Um, you have Arkansas, UConn, and TCU. I'm sorry, no Arkansas, UConn, and Gonzaga, UCLA on Thursday in Las Vegas, and then you have the winners on saturday we're taping this on tuesday does your preparation start already today or would it start when you land in las vegas
2: Uh, oh no no it started when i found out and we found out fairly late on sunday night where we were going to go they were waiting to see actually all this is the first time i can recall that all four sites are basically the same they've got the same gravitas they've got the same weight they've got the same big name schools each one of them sometimes that doesn't happen uh, in fact, it seems like you always say, oh, well, this one is terrific. And the other three are, eh, or these two are great. The other two are kind of so, so, um, not, not this year. I think all because of the, um, the equalness that we're seeing throughout the tournament, um, it's reflected in how these sites have been manufactured and stack up. And I think they're all the same uh, in, in terms of interest and fan involvement and curiosity. So that makes it fun for all four of us that that go to the second weekend. And I would tell you that uh, as I did with the first eight games, our first eight teams and the first four games that I had, same thing. I typed out my boards, but that's the only thing I really type out, just the number and the name of the kid. And then I do everything by hand and I've got levels that I do it. So the first thing I do is type all the boards. And and I've I've uh, I don't have it packed away, but I but I've I've got that all typed up and ready to go. Next thing will be the statistics and and the pronunciations, and then kind of a couple lead headlines for each team, records in conference, what they've done overall, how many games in a row they've won, who they beat to get here, what they do the first week, and all the, all those kinds of things. And then you go another layer. Well, how how's this kid shooting from three? And is there uh, things like I've already received Stan Van Gundy's. Scott reports he's watched a couple games for each of the four teams so i make sure that i've got that uh, filed away and i'll write down the things that i know are important to him so i can lead to him during the broadcast so again it's very layered and i'll be working right up toward uh, tip off in all all these games all three of the games um in las vegas this weekend
0: the the how do i sort of ask this las vegas is kind of a fascinating setting for these games in that like historically, when we think of Las Vegas and this tournament, we think of people traveling to the city uh, setting up in um, like casinos or sports books, wherever these uh, games are being played and not necessarily even Kevin, like rooting for the winner, but like rooting for (laughs) their own bet, you know, whatever sort of like that plays out having been there twice um, I will always sort of remember how watching like a 20-point blowout, like Pete, like an explosion when UCLA made a basket late to cover a spread, literally just made the game like a 22-point <laughs> win, but it was incredible, and it was very fascinating to sort of be part of that. So I bring that up to ask you, like, is it is calling games in Las Vegas unique just because of the city itself and um, the connection with you know, for such a long period of time is the only place you could gamble legally in the United States. That's obviously changed a lot, but it must be a unique place to call this tournament, I would think.
2: it. It is. We've done the Mountain West Championship out there the last several years. So going out there yearly to do basketball and going out there frequently in the NFL for the Raiders has made it kind of a, um, I'll go into Vegas again, uh, early on. When there was no NFL team there, and it was just once a year with the Mountain West Championship, um, it was a lot of fun. There was a novelty to it. I, I first went back there when I was doing Missouri back in 1989, and Jerry Tarkanian was, was coaching UNLV. Missouri was a perennial top five team at that time with Norm Stewart as their coach. And um, uh, we went out there and played in the afternoon, took my wife, watched Sinatra, who left midway through performance because he couldn't stand on his own two feet. Um, so yeah, so that though, that was my first introduction and then hadn't been out there until doing the Mountain West over the last couple of years for CBS. But now we go out there all the time with the Raiders uh, playing, certainly, and, and now the Mountain West Championship continuing on the schedule. And um, there is, I, I the city is full of entertainment. The city is full of life and, and vitality. and it does exude, I think, into the fans that go there to cheer on their teams. It's a happy place to go. It's a fun place to go. And uh, it is the entertainment capital of the world. I mean, um you're expecting to see uh, something that will wow you and and that is what the city kind of hangs its hat on. And I think people go out there with that uh, great interest of of being entertained, and they are and It's a very unique place. I was also out there for the um, NBA All-Star Games several years ago, back in the early 2000s, and that did not end well. It was a little raucous and kind of soured the NBA on Vegas and maybe expansion. I'm only guessing because there had been no talk about it since until the Raiders got there, the NHL went in there, colleges now, Pac-12, Mountain West, I think the West Coast Conference goes there for their postseason tournaments. And and the city, I think, has kind of gotten a hold on maybe some issues that were a concern to professional teams. And now with gambling, legal in, in many states around the country, it just feeds into the frenzy when you go out there to either gamble or be entertained or go to some sporting events. So it's all mixing very well. There's so many places to go and eat and stay and see and Things to do. The weather is normally nice. Uh, it's a great site. It's interesting the NCAA would go out there, though. I when I saw that as one of the places, I go, Wow, that's that's interesting that college sports would go out there for a big tournament like this. Uh, but they have, and um uh, I'm I'm anxious to be a part of the the activities and just the overall scene this weekend. I'm I'm very curious to see how it all plays out and and uh, if it's as big as I think it's going to be.
0: Yeah, I'm. 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 I'm interested. In well, uh, in addition to the games, all right, a couple more here. You tell me if my math is right on this. You've called 13 straight Super Bowls for Westwood One. Is that correct? Right, yes, sir. Okay. Um, Jack Buck called the most for on radio. Seventeen. My-
2: he called He called eight in a row and then missed a couple of years because the rights went to NBC, then called nine in a row. So as Westwood would say, the most consecutively for me, but still not yet that all that close to, to Jack Buck and his 17 that he do, did overall.
0: Okay. So, you know, again, like you, you, were, you've, you know, if you retired today, you've had a lottery ticket career, basically given like what you've uh, called, there's very few people who, um, who can match your career and what you've done you've always told me um, so you've been consistent on this throughout that like radio for you was sort of always like the bigger passion than than television and the the lead, to lead a package as you do for Westwood one meant a lot to you so this would really just be a personal thing um you know at this point you've you know your' I feel like your legacy if that's what you want to call it is already set when it comes to calling the Super Bowl for audio. But, like, does that, Jack Buck, like, is that an incentive for you? Like, would that mean something to you to try to get to 18 Super Bowls for Westwood 1? Or is that just something fun for people like me to note that Kevin Harlan is about to pass Jack Buck kind of thing?
2: Well, now that I'm that close to it, it probably becomes maybe more of a, um, maybe more of a story in my mind. Uh, First of all, honored to be in his chair and to even be thought of in that uh, kind of length of service to that particular game, which is the biggest game in sports, and to be so honored uh, to be able to call it. Um, it has probably become a little bit more personal. First of all, I know Joe and, and we're friends and, and text with him on various things. Just texted him about a week ago, as a matter of fact. And so we're friends. Um, but when I was a kid, I think I've told you this story before. My dad was with the Cardinals. Did I, I told you that yes, story, Media yeah. was a media relations, yeah, yeah. media relations director with the Cardinals, baseball Cardinals, um, from 65 to 71. When I was a kid, my day was Sunday, go to church, go then go down to Bush stadium and go to a Cardinal game. But I'd eventually end up with a bag of popcorn and a Coca-Cola in the back of Harry Carey and Jack Buck's broadcast booth for KMOX. And back then, you know, security was nothing. I walked in. And, uh, because I had a press pass that my dad gave me and would sit in the back of the booth for an inning or two and watch them always both incredibly kind, but I grew up on Jack Buck's voice. And then of course, when I got interested in broadcasting, when I was 10, 11 and 12, um, you know, would not only listen to Lindsey Nelson, but then when I really got into it, when I was in high school, uh, Jack Buck and Hank Stram were doing Monday night football and, um, and he became, he became the goal. Um, I wanted to do network radio play-by-play in NFL, in particular and specifically uh, Monday Night Football. So to get this chance from Howard Denneroff and the great people at Westwood One to call this game, call those those Monday Night games, and then the Super Bowl is 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 every uh, blessed beyond measure and every dream I've ever had in this business. Has come true with that, and and so it does become something that that I think about a little bit, especially in my early sixties. Thinking about, well, how much longer do I want to go? Um, I, I, I've always told my wife, and we've been married for thirty six years. Um, you know, now we've got four grandchildren, and our four children all live here in Kansas City, except our son who's out in Denver working. But but I want to be old enough that that I want to travel with the family. I, I want to be old enough that I can climb a mountain or I can walk over some ruins or I can you know I, I, I can do things physically and not work all this time and then not have the 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 great pleasure the things in life that really matter and that's being with family and enjoying experiences and able to play on the ground uh blocks or or dinosaurs with my grandson and then be able to jump back up and and then play dolls with our granddaughter so I, I, I this will not be a a long, Endless journey, Um, but the one thing that, as I've been, you know, reminded of often, is this this Jack Buck thing. Now, listen, Westwood One may make it move and change. Um, uh, Something may, I mean, who knows? I mean, they may lose the rights. Who knows what will happen? But at least for the time being, as long as that game is there, and I'm asked to do it, and honored and blessed to do it, I'd like to keep doing that game and doing that package. Radio, to me, as I've told you before, is so incredibly challenging because it hits on everything that an announcer needs. Uh, voice, diction, pace, uh, resonance, reporting skills, like it covers everything. And all the things that I use on TV have been born out of my radio background. And then TV helps me with some radio stuff too. They, they really go hand in hand very well, and they help, help the other one. Uh, they make me sharper in in whatever I'm not doing, if I'm doing radio, I think my TV stuff helps me there. If I'm doing TV, I, I definitely know my radio background helps me there, and and so uh, I like to see them as 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 great. Uh, it's it's a nice balance for me and keeping what I you know try to do, and I I appreciate that that combination.
0: Last one for me is your daughter, Olivia, uh, Olivia Harlan Decker, um, is a broadcaster herself and you have, um, you've had the pleasure to work with her now on a number of occasions. Um, I am certain you're the only father daughter to ever work NFL national games together, uh, My guess would be that you're the only father-daughter crew to work any kind of national games together. But, you know, I'd have to go back and sort of just double check my research to make sure that's the case. We've obviously seen, I mean, you just mentioned one very prominently. We've seen a lot of fathers and sons in the business. Joe Buck, obviously. Jack Buck. We mentioned, you know, someone sort of of current lineage. Uh, Noah Eagle, the son of Ian Eagle, is sort of now moving up. This is very rare in terms of a father-daughter combination who have called games at the national level and i just wonder for you kevin like i mean you know this is like your you know your little girl you remember her when she was one or two and now you guys are uh now you guys are working together she also has she just had a kid not too long ago so you have a one-year-old um a grandson i think so this must be on top of just being an incredible experience to be able to work with your daughter it must also be surreal in some way right that you now like your, daughter, isn't your is a professional working national level broadcast. So you must be incredibly proud but I wonder at the same time if it's like wow, like it's not so long ago when I was you know uh, holding her hand and you know taking her to get ice cream or something like that.
2: That's so true. I mean uh, and you're a father so you you can see and what it's like and watching them grow and as they make every step in life. and I was certainly there for all of our four kids and and Olivia is the third of our three daughters. And she used to have in the inside of her uh, closet uh, in our home, just right upstairs here. She had a, she called it a dream board and all the things that she wanted to accomplish in life. And she made this when she was like eight, nine years old. And it was, uh, you know, she wanted to go to a great school for college. And she wanted to be a cheerleader and play a sport when she was in high school. And she wanted to make sure that her grades were, were uh, you know, at, at, at the highest she could possibly achieve and then she always put this this picture of Leslie Visser uh, holding a microphone on the sideline. Wow, that's cool. And um, yeah, and I don't even think I've ever told Les that, I, and I she should tell because she she would, Leslie Visser would
0: really appreciate that.
2: Story. I, I I should tell her that because that was one of her very first idols, and now it's been Michelle, or it's been uh, you know the 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 wonderful women that are in this business, and there's so many good ones. My goodness. I'm floored. We just work. I work with Lauren Shahadi this past week. I never worked with her before. Uh, She's mainly baseball. Uh, She was brilliant. Uh, Brilliant. She was outstanding. Uh, We're getting Ali LaForce back on the NBA and she'll work with us in the Eastern Conference finals. And I can't wait to see her. She just had a baby with her uh, husband, Joe. So anyway um so so she had this and i would always ask her i said you really think you want to get the tv and she goes yeah dad and i'd bring her to press boxes and she sat in the booth and she put on the headset and when she was a little girl she was really the only one of our kids that really showed any kind of interest in it they all enjoyed the atmosphere but she enjoyed the broadcast side would sit in the truck from time to time and watch how that worked and i i said well I'll, i'll be able to gauge when you're away from home and not with me around and uh, just how serious you are. And she did stuff in high school. She did stuff for a local cable company here in Kansas City. And and uh, so she, I watched her go through this. I told my wife, I said, well, we'll see because the work ethic you need in this business, especially for a woman where it's so hard and incredibly competitive, um, we'll see when she's away from home how she navigates that whole, that whole situation. And she uh, just uh, was uh, unbelievable working, I missed many social outings. She went to the University of Georgia, great journalism school, uh, was given a lot of opportunities early on so yeah, had to work with her and see her growth at ESPN for all those years on the sideline and then working for Westwood One uh, she's overseas now in London she was working with uh, BetMGM doing a podcast and uh, she's been approached by some BBC things and the uh, basketball leagues and the NFL Europe's uh, situation over there which I can't really get much into but she's she she'll she she's doing as much as she wants to do and she's trying to weigh that mother professional thing which is hard uh very very difficult so that's where she but in proud i mean i think anyone any mom or dad that works with their son or daughter in any profession that they follow in your footsteps uh, the proud factor is off the charts and um once when, the we kick off though quite frankly it's down to olivia on the sideline and um um, it's, it's, it's more of losing myself again in the game and not thinking that's my daughter. Before the game, it's different. When we drive out to Arrowhead or wherever we are on the road uh, doing the stuff, uh, and she always answers. And Howard Denneroff has actually used her uh, for the SEC Championship every year, which is a big broadcast on Westwood One. Um, and and uh, she actually did that Bills-Chiefs game a couple years ago, your Bills, uh, that, that, that incredible playoff game at Arrowhead after uh, doing a game with me the week before, uh, they asked her to do the next week, and she did, and that was, I said, you'll never see a better football game than that. So you were a part of history then, and she she appreciates everything about the business, everything about the business, That's for sure.
0: Cool. And she, uh, just so the listeners know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe I'm correct on this, She London is at, at least partly home base for her right now because her husband, Sam, plays for a team in the British basketball league. He he was drafted in the NBA and now plays professionally in Europe, right? He's on that team. He does.
2: They're League team and plays over there and is in London. Uh, They've been in Istanbul. They've been in Russia. And now they're in in London, and they love every second of it. Uh, They really feel like it's become a second home. The organization really has embraced him and her. And um, and and they may actually stay over there a little bit, which will make certainly uh, uh, go going back and forth. If she does pursue some things here in the states, a little bit more, you know, difficult and, and tricky. But but she's nav- navigated it well so far. We're incredibly proud of her. I mean, I'm I'm more proud of what kind of wife and and mother she is than as a broadcaster. But clearly, as in that side of it, the broadcasting side, she's accomplished quite a bit, and she's done a great job and. I'm proud of the way she is uh, positioned herself,
0: yeah. she's you know, I don't know if this is of interest at a certain point. But she's got a pretty interesting book in her at a certain point, given all these travels and living in different places.
2: And <laughs> <navigating> <laughs> she does, Richard. Stuff. That's a pretty good idea. Yeah, you shouldn't have said that because she's the kind of gal that's always looking for stuff to do and And this will probably light some kind of fire. But uh, uh, every time I'm in the tournament, you know, I met her husband before she met her husband. I, that's right. <laughs> we were doing out we were doing out los angeles did did Wisconsin. And met Sam uh, uh, in Los Angeles at the West Regional many years ago. And I remember him coming in and talking with me and and our crew and then left. And I said, that's a nice kid. He said, you know, he's from Wisconsin and and from Sheboygan. And and that's how they met, actually, through mutual friends in Wisconsin, summer friends. We go up there in the summer. And, and that's how they met their mutual friends, and, and the rest is, is as it's, they it's, say, it's history.
0: It's history. All yeah. right, if Olivia does that book, Kevin, 2%. Mail that check. <laughs> <Arkansas.
2: I> <laughs> I'll tell her that. <laughs> Kevin Harlan,
0: of course, will call the NCAA tournament uh, this week. He will be in Las Vegas, which is a very, very cool, I think, setting to be in for this tournament. Arkansas, UConn, and then Gonzaga, UCLA on Thursday. And then he obviously has the winners on Saturday. You can catch Kevin calling NFL games uh, in the fall for CBS and uh, he'll be on the NBA for uh, TNT uh, as we uh, head down the stretch of a pretty interesting NBA season. Kevin, it's always great to catch up with you. Uh, I always appreciate you making time for me. Thanks so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast and uh, I'm sure we'll catch up uh, before the end of the year.
2: Feeling is mutual, Richard. Great respect for you. Thank you so much for having me on. I always enjoy our visits.
0: Alright, my second guest I'm very excited about, it's Jeff Perlman. By the way, I'll let the uh, listeners know, this is the third take now I've had to introduce Jeff Perlman. I don't know if it's the coffee or whatever, but uh, I'm way off my game today. I am a big fan of Jeff Perlman's journalism Yang Yang sub-stack. I, uh, I heartily recommend this. It's a lot of fun to read. Actually, I guess I'm not that big a fan because I still haven't paid Jeff for this. You should always pay for the writers you appreciate, so that's on my list to do. But he writes a lot of interesting things on sports journalism stuff that would interest you. This is obviously an addition of Perlman's um, many, many best-selling books. His last one, uh, the last book he came out uh, was, uh, was Bo Jackson. And so I always recommend his stuff. And so in the course of his substack, um, I don't know if you want to call it a column, but I, I'd sort of call it like very extended musings and reporting. It's pretty interesting. He's doing this. Project where it's um it's outside the box for him. It's a definitive biography of Tupac Shakur, the late rapper and actor. It should be a pretty amazing book by the time Jeff is uh is done with all his reporting and research and it comes out. But within one of the um, and I would Jeff, trust me, I'll get to you in a second. This is the longest intro on in history. Within um within sort of one of these sections on Jeff's excellent Substack, is he tells the story that there's a music executive that he contacts for this Tupac book. And the music executive says, yeah, I'll talk to you, but but it's going to cost you essentially $1,500 to talk to me. That's, that's my fee. That's my speaking fee. And Jeff presents it as a look of, you know, should journalists ever pay for sourcing? And like both of us obviously come on on the side of, you never pay for sourcing, but it's not a sort of, clear and cut and dry and i now bring in jeff perlman so jeff you didn't pay this person the money but it did get you thinking about should sources ever be paid are there any situations where you know there's some gray area so take my listeners inside of just sort of how this how this experience sort of prompted you to think about this subject
1: well it's not the first time i've been uh i've had someone ask for money I think if you do this long enough, you inevitably have someone ask for money. But when I started this Tupac process, uh, a fellow journalist who's worked a lot more extensively in hip hop than I have said to me, people are going to ask you for money. And I was like, oh, really? She's like, yeah, they're definitely going to ask you for money. And I was like, well, I can't pay. And she's like, well, they're not going to really care. And um, it hasn't been that bad. Actually, it hasn't been that bad. I've had two people thus far ask me. uh, One was an actor who was in a movie with Tupac, and one was this guy. And um, I'm with you, I'm a big, I'm a hard no on it. But I do think it's important to always understand where people are coming from. And if you're someone and you have this knowledge and you think it's really valuable, um, and some guy comes along and, you know, you know, I am making money to write this book on Tupac. It's not nearly as much as these people probably think, but I am making money. And you're this guy and you're like, well, why should I be giving you this information for free? And I always counter with, well, this is a legacy. Hopefully, this will be a legacy book. This will be a book that 100 years from now, if there's an earth 100 years from now, that people will be reading about Tupac and digging into Tupac. And don't you want your voice to be in that story? And a lot of times, the answer is, meh, I kind of just want the 1,500 bucks. So I, I know there are journalists who've paid. I think there's an ethical... I, it's a line I'm not willing to cross, but I do understand it. It just gets really sketchy.
0: So it's interesting. So while I'm a no, I, I, I want to bring up some sort of nuance on this, or maybe it's devil's advocate, because I think for both of us, I do I don't want to say, are we being hypocritical, but I want to just sort of examine, and I think you'll appreciate this. before we get into that, what did Jack McCallum, who's our longtime colleague at Sports Illustrated, who has done many, many, many books, What did he tell you when you contacted him to sort of present this A Jack? The situation came up. What do you think?
1: Well, no, because Jack told me a long time ago, we had had a conversation about a book he was working on, and he said he gave some of the guys who had talked to him money. And so I called him because I wanted to make sure I understood it. And I, I love Jack, and he's the best, and he's an A-plus journalist all the way around.
0: Oh, for sure.
1: Yeah, he's, a, he's great. And he was telling me that you know he, he had interviewed a bunch of guys who did interview with him. They didn't, they didn't ask for money. But in the course of it, they would sort of just expressed some dismay that over the past whatever years of their lives, they'd been approached multiple, multiple times about this subject. They always talk and some guy always makes money. And these are not, these are not basketball players. They're not rich people. They're people who don't have that much money. And sort of at the end of the process, he gave them all a little money. And he, he, in a way, I think he thought to himself, I pay for research, you know, I pay for research assistance. These guys aren't asking. It's not like I'm buying their information. They gave me information already. And um, I actually think that's a different thing than this. Because they didn't come to him with their hands out asking for money. At the end of it all, he felt bad for them. And I and I think the real interesting gray area, and it's definitely something I've done. I don't know if it's something you've done, but it's something most of us do, is like um, some guy wants to talk. Uh, where do you want to go to dinner? Let's go to dinner. Yeah, go thank dinner. you. This and I'm is paying for want- dinner.
0: Right. This is what I wanted to get into. So I'm really glad you brought that up. Okay. So I do think there's some line clearly between here is... $1,000, talk to me, and let's go out to dinner and talk. But I sort of got to thinking, like, is that really a line? When me and you were, and I think so, but I wanted to examine it with you. So when me and you worked at Sports Illustrated, we both had corporate carts, and we had expense accounts to... to you, by the way, had a bigger one as on a bigger beat. Um, so we had that ability to... Take a source out to breakfast or dinner. In fact, they used to drill onto us. I um I I don't mean to speak for you, but I'm fairly certain it was the same for you. Like, we want you to take people out to dinner. Like, we don't want you to get taken out. This is why we're giving you this expense account and corporate card. We want you to pay for this. Obviously, it was a different world when SI was a bit of an ATM machine. You could do this. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you know, probably not as much as you because you were covering baseball and doing a lot of these features. And I was sort of more uh, a junior, whether I was junior to Scott Price and John Wertheim on tennis or something like that. But, you know, there were definitely times when, like, you know, I would take a source out, put the card down, and I would pay for dinner. That dinner might be 300 bucks, $400, you know, $200. And so I thought to myself, Jeff, like, is that different? Like, I mean, at the end, it's... You're not handing somebody a $200 bill, but you are paying for a nice meal for them in exchange for... Some kind of, if not information, some kind of uh, relationship, right? That you're, that you're starting with them.
1: Okay. So I always think back, and I've told the story a million times, but the uh, quote-unquote infamous Chad Rocker story of 1999. Right. And I wrote about the racist baseball player. and we spent the day together, blah, blah, blah. And in the course of spending the day together, we went to lunch, and I bought him lunch. And fast forward, the story comes out. I'm in the bowels of Turner Field, and he's screaming at me right? His finger in my chest. I introduced you to my parents. I drove you around Atlanta. I blah, blah, blah. And he goes, he's screaming. And he goes, I bought you effing lunch. And I said, well, actually I paid for lunch. Well, blah, 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 blah. That's a true story. And I do think it always reminds me why it is actually important that we do pay for lunch and that we do pay for dinner, which is because they should not, we should not feel indebted to them that we owe them something or that they did us a favor so I do think that's important. At the same time, do we sort of make an excuse for ourselves that like I mean, because I've talked to many, many journalists about this specifically specific subject. Right. And it's like, well, just take them out for dinner. Maybe they'll talk to you then. And is that us really is that exercising good journalism or is that us just being convenient and bending the rules a little bit? And I think it's somewhere somewhere in between.
0: Yeah. And we had um, I mean, there were colleagues of ours who were um, doing profiles on a you know a a biweekly or monthly basis. Who really had massive expense accounts? I mean, I you can correct me if I'm wrong. I, there were stories at Sports Illustrated that like the scene was from a strip club, and yeah. right and there's no way that that writer did not pay for whatever was happening at that strip club, and you can expense that, and it was a business expense, and so after reading your piece, which I really, really liked and thought was interesting, and again, I want to be clear, like, I'm with Jeff here on the fact that, like, there is, I think, some kind of difference between, like, literally handing cash over in exchange for news, and, like, this gray area we're talking about, but like you, I did wonder, like, are we just convincing ourselves that there is indeed a, a gray area here, because I'll give you another example, and I wonder how you feel about this. This, to me, I mean, this crosses the line, but yet it's done all the time. So when like big places, um, you know the the ABCs and the CBSs of the world or the NBCs, right? They would they 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 always were in competition for subjects who were in the news. You know, a person who uh, Amanda Knox or someone like that. You know, like somebody who has like this international kind of story. And so I went back when I was going to talk to you. Did a little bit of research. And so from 2011, New York Times talks about ABC, ABC's Diane Sawyer securing the first ever interview with J.C. Lee Dugard, the young woman who was held captive for 18 years in California. Uh, this is straight from the New York Times. ABC declared it had not paid any fee for the interview. But last year, according to a longtime ABC News executive aware of the deal, the network paid a six-figure sum for rights to home movies for Miss Dugard. Oh, and yeah. a lot of times, you know what I mean, these, and again, by the way, someone like her... Jamie Lee Dugard should get. J.C. Lee Dugard should have gotten paid whatever she wanted. Like went through obviously something horrible, but th- there is this practice, Jeff, right, where you you license the photos or home movies, so you, you you it's the whole nuance play. You're not paying them directly for the interview. You're paying them for these other things that you're going to run in the interview.
1: Oh, it's the oldest trick in the book. By far, the oldest trick in the book is well, see if they have any photos, and you can pay them for the photos. And they'll also talk to you. In fact, the, I didn't even mention this in the sub stack, but the guy who said he would talk to me for $1,500 wrote me in a separate email. I probably should have used this actually. He said, um, said, you know, I also have photos that I could sell you. And I said, well, how much would it cost to buy a, a picture? And he's like, $3,000. And I was like, well, that's kind of expensive. And he said, um, I said, what about, that was for the cover of the book. I said, what about the inside? And he said, well, I can charge you, I don't know I said, a thousand, but you'd also have to pay the 1500 to talk to me. And I was like, this is all just too slimy for my money. I'm not, I'm not doing this, but yeah, all these tricks are old tricks. And I'm telling you, I, I know you see this because I definitely do. Like we justify our existence all the time, all yes, the time. I, I did a story. I did a story for SI last year about the Henry Ruggs crash in Las Vegas, where I hung out. I think I, I might've been on your podcast talking about this where
0: yeah, it's a great piece.
1: Thank you. But like, I spent time with a heroin addict who saw the whole thing happen, right? And I went to coffee with him. I bought him coffee. I bought his girlfriend a coffee. And I always walk away from those stories, honestly, honestly, saying, am I really helping anyone or am I taking advantage of some poor heroin addict who witnessed a car accident? And I just think like, we go along in this profession. And if you go along in this profession and you never stop and think, am I being ethical or am I doing this because I really want the story, then you're not something is a little warped in you. And I just think we have all these lines that we do cross or tiptoe around, and we do need to assess every once in a while. Why am I doing this? And is it the right thing to do?
0: Let me ask you a question about this. There was a uh, a really well-done uh, Adam Schefter profile by Ben Strauss of the Washington Post uh-huh. where he – I'm sure you saw this. Schefter uh, mentions that he has like a list of 150 or so people who receive um, – I think it was like Christmas uh like gifts or Christmas uh or I should say holiday wishes or whatever. That included um ties, scotch, chocolate ice cream, and then uh his coworkers and then he told Ben Strauss one year he spent $16,000 on chocolate. How do you how do you feel about that again? This is not straight out paying for news, but you know, it's a it's a reporter giving Uh, gifts to sources in some form or fashion.
1: All right. So I've really tampered down on sort of speaking out against other journalists because I know how hard this job is being serious. I really do. And I can appreciate it. I feel like Adam to have known in the past has really put a black mark on journalism and has made it in a way harder for people to do their jobs. And when you read stuff like that, it sort of makes my blood boil. And even thinking about it again makes my blood boil because this job is hard. And reporting and digging is hard and getting information is hard. And all just feels like cheating. Like that's the thing about it all. That's the whole thing about paying for information at the end of the day is like, I don't want to cheat. I like the reporting and I like the digging and I like the finding stuff. And if I pay you money for something, or if I'm lavishing gifts upon people, it's like cutting an enormous corner. It's not reporting anymore. It's buying information. And somewhere along the line, that guy just decided... He's not a journalist anymore. He's an entertainer disguised as a journalist. And that that it's a shame because he's a he's a freaking great reporter and he kind of just went dark side.
0: All right, let me so now let me counter. Not about Schefter for a second, but let me then counter with something that we were involved in and you tell me if we are being hypocritical here. Okay. When we worked at Sports Illustrated, they hosted lavish sportsman of the year parties. Lavish swimsuit parties. Both of us uh, attended, I'm sure a number of those. ESPN hosts the ESPY Awards. ESPN hosts lavish upfront. So, let, but let's take Sports Illustrated because we were involved in these. Ultimately, these parties we're inviting people who are very, very famous and will be subjects, if not honoring them. LeBron James. I went to a Sportsman of the Year party where LeBron LeBron James was honored. I went to one where Serena was honored. I think I went to the Drew Brees one. You might have gone to the Jeter one. There are all these athletes who are at this party. Being entertained by Sports Illustrated. By the way, not just being entertained. I, I guarantee, in fact, that Sports Illustrated paid for them to uh, come to the party. Or if they weren't from New York, we probably paid for their travel to the party. In fact, I'm almost sure of that in the travel department. Is that not, Jeff, us sort of being... Even if there is a department at Sports Illustrated that handles this, which is separate from editorial, separate from us, are we not part and parcel of part of this process because we were there and can benefit from the relationships down the road of said athlete attending this party then seeing Jeff Perlman in a dugout saying oh man I went to that swimsuit party man that was pretty cool how are you
1: all right first of all I'm happy to say in this case I never went to one never oh. ever ever not <laughs> look for at any, you yeah not for any I think I was I wouldn't say look I don't think I was ever invited so I never went you never went, went
0: to a, a sportsman one. party is that possible
1: never. Never. Now what about I swimsuit?
0: Won. You must have been to a swimsuit party.
1: I did. Um, remember when we were young, right? This is so embarrassing, pathetic. And they would rope us into escort.
0: Yes, I st- never did that. But you escorted the models. The models had like a Sports Illustrated escort to take them around basically for the day, right? And
1: sort A.K.A. You're twenty four like years old. You're twenty four yeah. years old at Sports Illustrated, and you want to brag to your friends about taking some terrified. It, it, it,
0: yeah, I, I admit I, I never did. It was admittedly a ridiculous assignment for for young reporters.
1: Oh my god, yeah, the dark, dark days. Um, no, I, I can't. I can't argue with you. I agree with you. I think okay. again, we violate so many lines in this profession, and we cross so many lines in this profession um, that anyone who wants, if if you're for example, because he's good at it, Donald Trump, and you want to call out the hypocrisy of media, well, it's not very hard. It's not very hard at all. And what TV yeah. does, TV still pays for guests. You know, all these networks, not all of them, but there's certainly networks that still pay for guests, find a way to pay for them, we'll fly you first class, we'll put you up at this hotel, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, we're all a bunch of hypocrites to a certain degree.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess the, what where I, where I sort of land is, it's the lines ultimately, right? It's like, there are levels of this stuff and, and hopefully- you want to be on a certain side when sort of it all breaks but but i appreciate you coming on because like i did i ha- i was thinking i really like the substack a lot and i like all the stuff you do on this and i was thinking like you know i can't totally say that i'm 100% clean here because i have been while i have never myself handed cash over you know like 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 some kind of deal like i have been parts of these other things where in some ways like it is it's sort of quietly being done. And again, I went to a lot of, I can't, I don't know if I ever benefited per se from being at a sportsman party, okay? Like, I don't know if my reporting ever did. I don't think it did. But, like Serena Williams being named sportsman of the year and deserved a sports person of the year absolutely would have benefited SI's tennis coverage. It just would have made the Williams family and that group like more happy to talk to anybody who worked on that staff. It's just a logical thing.
1: I don't disagree with you at all. And I, I am, I kind of, again, ultimately for me, as much as it kills me, and I am like in the middle of my own freaking book death right now, like the digging and the, and the, the carving out and the finding and the searching and the walking streets and the knocking on doors, like I don't want to take shortcuts. Like I actually love that stuff as much as I hate it.
0: All right, well, we're going to finish up on this. I want to ask you one broad question. I know you don't like to talk about the books That's that okay. you're working on as you're doing them, but um, have you been enjoying the process of immersing yourself in Tupac? You, you Basically for you, most of your career has been about writing about either teams or athletes. This is very, very different uh, for you, but I, at the same time, probably really, really fascinating because you're getting to do something you've never done.
1: It's, uh, my wife keeps saying, stop complaining, stop complaining. It is... Um, it's killing me. It is killing me. I feel like I'm a 12-pack-a-day smoker. It is the hardest book I've ever worked on. It's a million different avenues. Um, there's so much out there about Tupac, but it's, most of it is, has been repeated over and over and over again. So it's a scene. Probably, I probably own 50 Tupac books. Wow. Uh, I'm up to about 200 interviews. I'm not even close to getting started. I mean, I'm just like, I hired a genealogist. Here's the best thing I've ever done, reporter-wise. There's a woman out of... Jacksonville, Florida, named Michelle Suley, and she's a genealogist. And I hired a genealogist to break down Tupac's family history and really that's get fascinating. it. Fascinating. Yeah. And she's the best hire I've ever made in my life by far. It's ridiculous. So that's been really good.
0: She's giving you the lineage of like Tupac's uh, like his family tree going way back to wherever.
1: Way back, but also other people, you know, a big part of these books that people don't really maybe know think about, it's not just about Tupac. It's about the place. It's about the time. It's about all of a sudden you're into Suge Knight. You know, like Suge Knight, for right. example, Death Row. Suge Knight played three games with the 1987 Los Angeles Rams as a replacement player. You played wow. college football, UNLV, and El Camino College. So all of a sudden you find yourself writing a Tupac book, but fascinated by the 87 Rams striking. Yeah, and excellent. it takes you down all these different routes and and rivers. And it, it winds up, I mean, it's really fun, but it's just really hard.
0: <laughs> all right. Last one. I know you love, you're you a big fan of quick hits, right? So I'm going to give mm-hmm. you like... uh Seven quick hit questions. There's only one answer on these, okay? It's either or. Okay. You ready? Yeah. All right. Harrison Ford or Gene Hackman?
1: Uh Harrison Ford.
0: Barcelona or Maui? Barcelona. In and Out Burger or Shake
1: Shack? Uh Shake Shack.
0: Brett Favre or Aaron Rodgers?
1: <laughs> <Lynn Dickey.
0: laughs> That's a, Don McCowski would be good too. Uh will Fox win or lose its case against Dominion?
1: Oh, lose.
0: Tupac or Biggie? Pfft,
1: come on. Are you even asking that question?
0: Yeah. I just, I, I just, I have to ask it. Yeah. Tupac. Uh, New York or Los Angeles?
1: I'm going to, I'm going to go New York.
0: Last one. You ready? Otani or Ichiro?
1: Oh. Ichiro. That was my first cover story Sports Illustrated was Ichiro.
0: Yeah, that's who I would have picked too. I love that guy. I love Ichiro. He's one of my uh, favorite athletes of all time. You wrote a cover story on him and Scott Price wrote a cover story on him. Uh, and I remember both of those. Um, I would just
1: want to say, I, the thing I remember from that cover story is um, it was the first time I ever dealt with a translator and Ichiro would give these long answers and the translator would say, Ichiro says it's good. And I'd be like, wait, what? And then um, his nickname, the Mariners gave him, this was his rookie year. They kept it's not funny in hindsight, it's just stupid, but they his nickname was Ichi Balls. So they kept calling him Ichy Balls throughout the season. And they all thought it was the funniest thing ever. And that just speaks to the humor of the 25 year old major league baseball. <laughs> major
0: player. League Baseball player. Yeah. And yeah. then there was a point, right, where Ichiro really did know English clean. He just didn't want to deal with it, he was kind of a genius in that, right? Where he was like, I'll, I'll have my translator, I'll sort of deal with media if I want or not. But he understood everything, supposedly.
1: I always remember when he, uh, when Jeter played his last game, and he has this hug with Ichiro, and they're like having this conversation back and forth. And I'm watching it, and I'm like, "Wait a second, where was this guy? Where's where this guy when I needed him for the cover story?"
0: Yeah, he he's a fascinating, of uh, absolutely fascinating figure in yep. sports. All right, Jeff Perlman is the uh, author of. Uh, I wrote this down. Jeff, is it? It's um, it's nine books, right?
1: Or is it's it ten? ten books, Rich? It's ten okay. books.
0: How Come did on. I miss that? All right, it's ten books. Many of these have been uh, bestsellers. He's obviously right now working on his uh, his book about Tupac. Check out his Two Riders Slinging Yang podcast, uh, as well as uh, the substack that I mentioned. Is there anything else, Jeff, that you want to promote?
1: No, but I do want to know, do I, should I pay you for this interview now or later?
0: <laughs> I should be paying you, honestly, <laughs> for, because like, a very just... Uh, just on starting and stopping this interview four times, you deserve some kind of uh, fair enough. Some kind of payment. All paid. right, Jeff Jeff Perlman. Uh, again, I'm not bullshitting here. I, I love that Substack, and and people should check it out. It's really a lot of fun. One of the cool things that Jeff does is he highlights uh, in every one of these a college journalist who's doing that, who's doing interesting work, which is a very cool thing. Not only do you learn about uh, um, this college journalist, but like anytime you're a college journalist and you just get a clip anywhere, it's just like a cool thing. So. Good on you for doing that, Jeff. Uh, Thanks. I I always appreciate that. All right, Jeff Perlman, everybody. Thanks, Jeff.
1: Thank you.
0: All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Kevin Harlan and Jeff Perlman for uh, two great conversations. Uh, I really enjoyed doing today's podcast. That was fun. If you like these kind of conversations, head to the archives page. There should be uh, some stuff you're interested in. The podcast before this one uh, was myself and Chad Finn. We did about an hour of sports media talk, including... Uh, Aaron Rodgers' impact of moving to the Jets and what that means for viewership and scheduling. Prior to that, WWE star Rhea Ripley on the nexus of wrestling and media. Matt Norlander on uh, covering the NCAA tournament. Did some Pac-12 talk with uh, San Diego. Sorry, we did some Pac-12 talk with San Jose Mercury news reporter John Wilner. Formula One talk with Luke Smith and Madeline Coleman, how you cover that event, uh, Apple, if you're into MLS, Apple, Major League Soccer Broadcasters, Marcelo Balboa, Daniel Slayton and Taylor Twelman and uh, if you're into NASCAR, Fox NASCAR announcers, Mike Joy and Larry McReynolds. If you like this kind of conversations, please leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That's how this podcast continues. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti, of course, for his hard work. Thanks to everybody at cadence 13 for their support and thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.